Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm June Kim. And I'm Sam Marchetti. And today we're going to talk about a bunch of topics and get you up to date on everything from autonomous sailboats all the way to creative AI in another discussion on the sidelines. So Sam, what kind of news have you been hearing about in the science world lately? Okay, so one thing I read this week, you know how when you go to the grocery store, I don't know, like, I don't know what your preference is. In my family, we always buy, like, we go for, you know, the, like, the free-run brown eggs. You know, you can get, oh, yeah, like, the same, brown eggs yeah. and the white eggs. My family does um, Yeah, right? Anyway, we always go for, like, the free-run uh, brown eggs. And you know how, like, that kind of, like, you kind of have a preference, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just based on the color of the eggshell, even though there's not really, like, a difference there. Yeah, I would not be able to tell you if there even is a difference, honestly. Right, exactly. Okay, so that's what I was reading about this week. Um, and it was basically the reason for differing, well, potential reason for differing colors in eggshells. So uh, these researchers were looking at ducks. They weren't looking at... Um, and they weren't looking at chickens, which I know is where we, you probably, you probably get your eggs. That's where I get right. my eggs from. <laughs> Anyhow, they were, they did their study on ducks and they were trying to figure out what actually makes the eggshell colors change. Um, so in ducks, they were looking at green and white eggshells instead of, you know, the brown and white that you would normally get in chickens. Um, and basically what they found is that the color is really heavily related to increased expression of something called L-leucine. Um, okay. Have you heard of leucine, June? I've I've heard of leucine before, but what is that exactly? What is that? Exactly? So it's uh, it's an amino acid. It's an amino acid. Uh, L-leucine is, uh, is just a specific kind of formation of this one amino acid. We already know that this amino acid is like important for human metabolism and like how we you know build up muscles and how we you know uh, break down proteins and stuff. Um, but that's basically it. It just has a little bit more of this one specific kind of amino acid, which is, you know, the building block of a protein. And that's able to just change the entire color. Yeah, and that that kind of, uh, well, it's correlated to the change in color. They're not sure if that's okay. 100% the cause, as with, you know, everything in science. They can't be like, ah, oh, this is proof, right. you know? But there's some pretty heavy evidence there that, yeah, it's just this one little, like... One little amino acid being overexpressed uh, here and there, and that kind of causes changes in eggshell colors. So there might not actually be like a huge difference between the content in different colored eggs. It's purely just because some people are attracted to the different colors of eggs. That's crazy. And, and I believe every word that's coming out of your mouth, but I'm going to stick with the brown eggs that I get at the store, <laughs> just yeah, like same. as I've been for all these years. <laughs> okay, and you know what? I have my own theory, which is that the brown or maybe it's not just the brown eggshells but at least the free run eggs whenever mm -hmm. i buy like free run eggs i feel like they're stronger and i don't know if that's just a psychological thing you know you know they have like the, the they come in like the cardboard carton instead of the plastic right. and right. The, you know they have all this nice packaging on them and i just feel like the eggs are stronger do you think it's harder to crack open as well is that what you're yeah that's what, say? I'm saying. Oh, that's what wow. i'm saying because i feel like it, when, when on the off chance that you know my family buys non-free run eggs my mom's like a huge you know she just, you gotta buy like the organic stuff right. and the free run stuff um but when on the off chance that we don't have that i just feel like the eggs crack so much more easily huh. and i don't know if that's just me though 
I, I will I will try that out one day and maybe I'll get back to you on that one. That was very interesting. I like that. Theory. Yeah, this is going to be a future future study by science for everyone. Um, Absolutely. We'll, we'll get yeah. to it one of these days on the podcast. Yeah. So in the idea of animals uh, comes the environment and there's new environmental news in the world of methane. So methane is at an all time high in the atmosphere these days. And I don't know if you heard about this, but you know how some people are saying that like, oh, because of COVID-19, we were reducing our emissions at, at least as some benefit as what's happened with the lockdown. Have you, have you heard of this kind of dialogue that's been going around? Yeah, especially right at the beginning of the pandemic, right? We had a huge discussion about that. There were like no cars in the streets. I think it, they had this a similar discussion about like boats. I remember in Venice, right. like the waters were clear and they could see dolphins in the middle yeah, of Venice. Yeah, I heard about those too. But unfortunately, uh, the methane statistics specifically, they have been seeing steady increases throughout COVID-19 and obviously past the last decade, couple of decades, honestly. And yeah, that's been a growing issue and we're at an all-time high in methane levels. So scientists were curious about where the biggest contrib contributions to these emissions were coming. And an interesting number one, do you want to guess what's number one for methane contribution into the atmosphere? I mean, I don't know. I like, I don't really want to say it, but like cows, like cow farts, isn't that like number one methane emitter on the planet? So we're actually going to talk about cow, cow farts in a second here, but number one is actually wetlands. Because there's tons of biological processes and microbes that actually produce methane as a byproduct in wetlands. A lot of the kinds of like microorganisms, but even just like regular animals that live there just produce a lot of methane. Uh, number two is methane that's trapped under the earth that is being released because of fossil fuel extraction. And then number three is your guess. Uh, number three is the, the cow farts. But even though like, you know, wetlands being a very natural occurrence and that's, you know, con contributing to the methane levels, there's a much more worrying thing that we've found which is that much more of the methane that's being emitted in terms of like trends and increases has been like related to humans so fossil fuel extraction so the way they proved this was so methane is a is a chemical compound it's one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms but that carbon atom that one carbon atom it can be in multiple forms but the main ones are carbon 12 or carbon-13. And the only real difference is carbon-13 is a little bit heavier and therefore like responds a little bit differently. Carbon-12 is the natural one found in the cow farts and the byproducts of, you know, wetland organisms. And carbon-13 is the one that's found within the earth that gets released when you have things like fossil fuel extraction. And we're seeing tons more carbon-13, the fossil fuel one, than carbon-12 in the atmosphere these days. So there's definitely a very bad trend towards, like, even though wetlands is the number one, wetlands are the number one contributor, uh, the trend is increasingly uh, going towards, like, man-made methane wow that's so annoying to hear yeah, i don't absolutely. know about you but my first reaction is just to be annoyed like, yeah i feel like you know at the very least the very least it's like stay in your lane fossil fuel industry you know like when you think about fossil fuels you're like co2 they're the ones responsible for the CO2. If you think about methane, you're like, it's the agriculture industry. They're right. the ones responsible. Stay in your lane. You can't have fossil both fuel does it all. <laughs> fossil fuel industry. Pick one. Like, you can't take all the cool greenhouse gases. And, and, and since they do it all as well, 
And, um, you know, we, we talked about wetlands being number one. There's actually another man-made thing related to wetlands, which is uh, with the destruction of many wetlands, there have been many human-constructed wetlands, which is great because we're increasing the amount of wetlands that happen. But since we're placing them just randomly wherever is more convenient for us, they're actually not beneficial to the ecosystem that we're creating them in. So they're not doing all the good things that a wetland should do, uh, like, you know, regulating water, quality water supply you know protecting us from floods and stuff like that uh because they're not like they are not in the natural places they were supposed to be they were just kind of moved away to wherever was convenient for us humans so yeah even these constructed wetlands especially are you know contributing to the methane level and not even contributing substantially or at least the same way that natural wetlands should be contributing to the environment so just wow, uh, a lot of man-made so issues there's so much to think about there because, I mean, number one, like, man-made wetlands, they're, they're meant to, like, help with biodiversity and, you know, building up the, the natural environment, right? That's such a, oh, that's such an unfortunate, like, side effect. Yeah, but the best thing to do is just to leave them alone in the first place. Like, that, that yeah. is truly the best thing we could have done, but unfortunately, this, yeah. this is where we are right now. And the other thing is, you know, just after talking about this... Last week, two weeks ago, um, I guess it'll be, we did an episode with Sam Reynolds talking about uh, ExxonMobil and their kind of climate change pledges. And she mentioned specifically that those pledges are just in the manufacturing process. So they're not even making pledges related to what happens when you burn the the products that they're creating. So when we burn gasoline, they're not taking any responsibility for that, the emissions related to that. But they are saying they're going to kind of, uh, you know, they're going to stick to targets and like actually take down their emissions um, during the production. So I wonder if I wonder if their emissions pledges include methane. I wonder if that was something they thought about. I hope so. I hope so. We would we would hope that they're trying to be as all encompassing as possible. Yeah, we're gonna have to bring Sam Reynolds back to uh, to talk about that and get into a little bit more detail. Um Anyway, I don't have a cool segue into the next thing, but that's fine. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> Do you know what a microbiome is, June? Uh, the microbiome, like within us, like human beings. And no, just a microbiome in general. Do you know what the word means? Kind of just like a collection of micro, like organisms, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It's cool. just like small, it's really small organisms. We got like single cells. We got bacteria and things like that. <laughs> um. So we have a lot of microbiota or really small organisms living on our skin. And what was done very recently um, was published the 7th of February. I just have the date right in front of me, so I'm looking at it. Um, But what these researchers did was they were kind of um, they were aiming to investigate what happens when you apply a specific kind of bacteria strain isolated from the skin um, just to kind of see what happens to cell viability in human uh, skin cells and some kinds of human skin cells. So the first thing they did was they looked at um, the skin microbiota, again, those small organisms of a group of Saudi females. Um, and they basically, I, I find this really interesting. They found high prevalence of these two different kind of um, two different kind of microbes. So the first one is S. aureus. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I hope I have S. aureus. Um, and then they found another one called S. epidermis. If it sounds familiar, it's because epidermis is you know your epidermis. It means like the outer right. layer. Yeah, the top um, of the skin. Yeah. Yeah. So what they kind of found was that S. aureus attacks some of your skin cells. 
So that was the first one they found. Wow, that first okay. kind of microbiota, it attacks some of your skin cells. So in these samples they were taking, it was attacking the, the skin cells. And they tested this in a lab. They took some of these skin cells in a little Petri dish and they put in just the S. aureus. And it reduces the, the viability of these uh, skin cells. But then when they add S. epidermis, the other bacteria, it kind of wards it off. It, they kind of fight for, you know, they fight it out. And uh -huh. it increases that, you know, how many of these cells can survive and keep, you know, oh, wow. reproducing, which is insane. So you need both. Otherwise, it doesn't work out. You need both. Otherwise, it doesn't work out. So not everyone has these um, these microbes on their skin. They only mm -hmm. found these in this. Like, they only studied this one population of Saudi females. Um, so you know, there's a good chance that people in other areas of the world won't have the same kind of microbial uh, populations living on their skin. But what they did kind of say was, well, if you get an infection with S. aureus, so if, you, if you're if you not someone who normally has this living on your skin, maybe we can treat it by adding more microbes. Oh, right? that makes a lot of sense. Right? It's cool. There's like microbes having a war on your skin. Wow. And that's so weird because it's it sounds like it's like you have one bad thing. I'm not necessarily saying S. epidermidis is bad, but you know, let's add another microbe to the to the party, and everything just kind of neutralizes itself. And yeah, you know, your own cells don't really have to do any of the work. It sounds like almost. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to defend against uh, you know, a microbial infection, yeah, it's good to have other microbes that'll like fight for you. It kind of reminds me of um. You know, there's certain symbiotic relationships in nature. You like, you know, how the um, there's some kinds of eels that will, you know, like latch onto the belly of a shark and the shark right. won't eat the eels, but the eels will clean off the shark and get food from that. It's just another example of like cool. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, cool harmonies in nature. Gotta love it. It's complex and it's beautiful. Cool. And on biology news, because there's something else about like the human body that I actually actually was reading about. There is a new research paper that is hoping to restore hearing. So as people naturally age, hearing loss is just natural. Almost every single person who ages just has hearing loss. And the reason is we have something called hair cells in our ears. It's kind of weird, like hair in our ears. But, but that is what truly is al al allowing us to hear. We have hair cells in our ears. And when those hair cells die and they, and they can never grow back, that's why we have hearing loss. Because again, they never grow back. There's nothing we can do about it. Or so we thought. So researchers found that in mice, the mice actually regrow their hair cells until one week of age. And exactly when they turn one week old, the mice can't grow the hair cells anymore. So that's probably useless because, you know, that's not where hearing loss happens. That probably happens much later in life. But what's exciting is that it means that it is possible to grow hair cells. So they were building off of this. So in our genes and, you know, our cells and everything within our human body, we have things called epigenetic markers, but to put it more simply, you can just think of them as switches. So epigenetic markers tell the body when to turn on the production of one thing and turn off the production of something else, or just a natural switches that exist in the body. So when the marker's on, something will happen. If the marker's off, something else will happen. So the new exciting news that I was reading about was that researchers actually found the exact specific switch in mice that turns off the growth of the hair cells in your ear. So we now know which switch we're looking for. We know the switch that uh, might actually be able to be reversed. 
Uh, but there's a few issues still, like this is a very preliminary paper. Uh, number one is they still have to t figure out how to turn on the switch because they've only observed how to turn off the switch. Yeah, I was about to ask. I feel like they definitely did not figure out how to turn the switch back on yet. Otherwise, I would have heard about this. Yeah, they're not there yet. So if they can figure out how to turn on the switch, that'd be huge because that means you can, you know, actually create the growth of these hair cells and maybe restore hearing. And the second thing is obviously how do we apply this to humans? Because a, a mouse model is very different from a human model. So yeah, the research is pretty preliminary, but I think it's just super cool that there's just all these kinds of new findings that are, you know, doing what we thought was impossible previously. Yeah, that's super cool that we might just have a switch that turns on the growth of basically, you know, hair cells that make our ear work. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. It makes me kind of think about, um, honestly what we were just talking about with the you know how when you you build like man-made wetlands mm -hmm. um and then they kind of have these like negative side effects that we didn't think about right like they're producing all this methane now you know it kind of makes you think maybe there's a reason that the hair cells turn off later in life <laughs> you know maybe there's a reason for that like i feel like if we mess with it maybe something else bad is gonna happen like we turn yeah, so on you know the you know we enable the human body to grow new hair cells later in life and then yeah. All of a sudden, we just completely lose all memory function and everyone has <laughs> zero ability to remember anything because now our brain is focused on making new hair cells or something. That is not science. That is not backed up by any science for our listeners. That is purely me making ridiculous um, science fiction hypotheses. That's probably not true. I'm just saying there might be some negative side effects. Um, and uh, it's cool. That'll be yeah. cool to uh, cool to find out about later. Yeah, with every discovery, there's always like more things we discover for the for good, at, like for the better, but also for the worse. So that's yeah. just the story of research. Absolutely. And speaking of for better or for worse, um, I'm not going to talk about comics right now, even though that is a fun comic strip. Something that has been in the news a lot in the last like decade almost, um, and you know we're talking about whether it's for the best or for the worst. Autonomous uh, autonomous navigation. Right. Mm. So mostly we talk about this with cars. Right. Um, planes have had it for a while. The ability to kind of just set a course and go because they just have to go in a straight line. We're starting to see it in cars now. Um, and there's been this huge discussion about whether or not, you know, is this really the best idea? Like, should we trust the computer? Um, I don't know. What do you think, June? Should we trust the computers? I mean, that's the thing. We, we want to believe that we can trust the computer, but, you know, as soon as the first accident happens, we just immediately lose all trust, right? So it, it's, it's a really hard question to answer. Honestly, I, I think right now, probably not. Man, you know, I do see what you're saying, like, and I definitely, I understand that. My mom has the exact same argument. So we do have, a, um, in my family, we have a Tesla, and it has the, you know, the auto drive thing on it. And any time my mom's in the car, if I'm driving and I try to turn that thing on, I'm, even on the highway where you're just going straight, all I have to do is follow the lane. She's like, no, 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 I don't trust it. And I'm here thinking, well, this thing has, you know, I have two eyes and two hands. This thing has instantaneous control over every piece of the vehicle. It has six cameras on it with another, you know, infrared camera and then a LiDAR sensor. Like, I'm not that good. I don't have these things. <laughs> that makes sense. No, that's actually kind of fair. But so anyway, I do feel like, you know, the um, the idea of autonomous navigation, of letting the computers kind of, um, you know, move our transportation, I think it's catching on a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And that's something I was uh, I read about this week. Um, 
researchers have started trying to apply autonomous navigation to ships so not just boats but specifically like large ships um and they you know they basically created some mathematical models for this but the interesting thing is that they're trying to apply it to ships in um in port so in these kind of small areas where there's not a lot of range of motion there's not a lot of room for error I have piloted a boat a couple of times. It is not easy to turn the thing. I have hit the dock. I can't imagine, um, you know, it's like I can't imagine um, there's a lot of room for error in a model like this and something that would be driving a boat. Wow. I guess they're starting where it's hardest because, you know, open sea, I assume, would be much easier. So maybe navigation within the port, they're just trying to start with the hard stuff and figure that part out, maybe. Yeah, it's similar to, I think, how the plane, um, like, autopilot kind of works, you know? Because, like, boats basically just set, like, a, uh, they set a trajectory. They're like, hey, we are going that way. I will look for obstacles and alert you, you know? Like, it's kind of like the, I mean, this is a terrible analogy, but Titanic, you know? How they just kind of go straight and they have a somebody watching and the somebody watching is like, oh, we should turn now. Yes. Only, you know, they didn't they turn. They actually do turn. Um, <laughs> they tried to turn, but the guy didn't see it soon enough. Um but yeah, I think it's got a lot of uh, a lot of very interesting applications and some very interesting directions that we could be headed with in the future, right? Like if we're trying to plan, um, you know, autonomous navigation of boats now, big boats in port, mm -hmm. how soon is it before we're planning like autonomous landing of planes and stuff? That's true. Yeah. And I, I'm sure this is huge for like like cargo and shipping as well, that you can just send a boat on its own merry way. Uh, like I, I feel like that's a huge application to this too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it would be. This is still a very preliminary theoretical okay, okay. Um, idea, but if it works, if they can, you know, uh, address their address their obstacles, um, then this could be a very interesting uh, path forward. That's pretty cool. So I, I got a question for you, Sam, ab about this exactly. Do you think AI is going to take over all of our jobs? Oh, we t we touched on this. Uh, what was it two weeks ago? I think uh, Tanisha and I talked about this. Um, no, I don't. I because... think, well, yes, yes and no. Yes, I think it will take over the existing jobs. No, I don't think it's going to make every human unemployed. Okay. That, yeah, I think that's a very fair answer. So I, I think a lot of people say, you know, AI, they can replace us in the factories, but they can never take away what's ours. And that's our human quality. That's our creativity. Uh, well, I'm here to inform you that they have also taken our creativity so what? basically what's happened is well well this is kind of apart from my own reading that i did but there was a painting that was created by an ai and that was sold for over four hundred thousand dollars in 2018 so ai is doing art but the one that i was more interested in is ai is creating music oh my god i thought you were to say ai is creating nfts Oh, I, I'm confident AI is also creating NFTs. It's Jesus. Okay, okay, go on. So researchers gave AI the scraps of Beethoven's 10th Symphony. Before Beethoven died, he had scraps of this next project that he really was going to put out, the 10th Symphony, and it was incredibly unfinished. It was very, very rough. But AI was given this draft, and basically the AI completed the symphony based on all of Beethoven's other pieces and music and every piece of information that it could be given. And it premiered late last year in 2021. And I got to be honest with you, I listened to it. It sounds like pretty much like Beethoven. And I'm not like the deepest musical 
you know, analyst or something like that. But I, I, it definitely does sound like Beethoven, which is uncanny to me. So yeah, like AI is also doing creativity. AI is also doing art. I don't like that. <laughs> That's too far. That's too far. Take it, take it a step back. <laughs> yeah. And what? because it's our emotional, like the, the idea that humans can be emotional, can express and have creativity is such a human quality that we don't want our AI to have. But actually there's an AI called Iva, A-I-V-A, and it literally takes emotions to create more music. This is actually a really fun one. So it's able to create a bunch of songs or a soundtrack on the fly based on emotional input. So if you say happy tune, sad tune, it's able to just, you know, create something on the fly. But there's an incredible application of this, and that is open world gaming. It's something I would have never thought about. But have you ever played one of those like open world games, just like Breath of the Wild, where you can just kind of like explore the entire... Yes, yes. I just bought a new open world game today, actually. That's awesome. So basically, you know, you explore the world around you, you try to do side quests and counter things as you explore, uh, and that's kind of the concept of these kinds of games. But instead of just repeating the same three or four soundtracks on loop, what if you just had AI make your soundtrack? And it goes deeper than this. The soundtrack changes depending on your health, your character mood, your nearby threats, all of these factors, this new AI Iva, it can take all of these into account and create like infinite amounts of background music that like none of it's repetitive just on the fly based on exactly what situation you're in that's insane because i know like okay i know open world games already kind of do the thing where they play like specific music if you're like under threat or have low health or stuff like mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. but that's crazy that it like to think an ai is just making like you your own personal soundtrack for the game as you're going along and, and none of it's repeated pre-recorded tracks it's just actually just infinitely pumping out material as it goes so if you are in low health the next time you're in low health it might be a different soundtrack like entirely okay this does sound really cool but i'm still so skeptical about <laughs> anything to do with ai and emotions meeting i do not want ai that can feel things that is the premise of every single like apocalypse you know robot movie ever like irobot is literally based on ah what if we had robot like assistants and then one of them learned to feel you know? Oh yeah, that, that, and that is actually just, maybe we're, this is actually just one terrible step closer to that uh, apocalyptic world that you're afraid of, about. I really hope not. I really hope not. Awesome, well thank you again for tuning in, and remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about artificial intelligence or gene editing or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant. <laughs>